Chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Um, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of men went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men and renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was cor corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Well, let's uh, pray before we uh, uh, look at this important passage uh, from the scriptures. Uh, please join with me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, so much for your word, that your word is, uh, is true and that it is uh, light and is life for us. Father, we pray that 
we would take your word uh, with the utmost of seriousness and that by your spirit that you would be using it to uh, inform our minds but to transform our hearts as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He was a good bloke. He, he loved his family. He raised his, fam- his kids, um, dearly devoted to his wife, and, uh, and he loved his, loved his bowls, loved his sports. He was a good bloke. Well, did he think much about God? Oh, no, not really. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't religious at all, but uh, I'm sure he's up there with God in heaven now, probably having a beer with him. Uh, that's who he was. This is a sort of typical conversation that I have with people when I'm meeting with them in order to arrange a funeral for someone they love. And in a sense, it's, uh, it's actually not a bad kind of expression of what a lot of people think about life, about what a lot of people think is the, the good life, the, the life that is, that is well lived. But as people go about the, the busyness of life, the busyness of, of getting an education, uh, the busyness of working in their jobs, of uh, perhaps getting married, uh, raising a family, buying a house, paying off a mortgage, uh, they can ignore God. They can be oblivious to God and uh, live life, live the whole of their lives without giving him a second thought, uh, without living for, with, with him, living without God. And as Christians, I think that we can easily feel uncomfortable about challenging people uh, in this kind of situation. We can feel uncomfortable uh, challenging people to, to think about God, to think about eternal things, and to think about their need to get right with him. I think it's especially uncomfortable for us to, to talk about sin and to talk about, about judgment, especially with good people, especially with the, the ordinary people who are just, just doing life as everyone else does, just getting on with the working hard and raising their families and, and enjoying their sport but ignoring God in their lives. And yet when we uh, read the Bible, uh, we find that it's full of warnings, uh, warnings about judgment, about God's judgment, and warnings to, to all sorts of people, uh, even warnings to, to ordinary people, uh, warnings to ordinary people, people like the people that we know and we meet and we do our lives with, Warnings to people, even to us. One of the, uh, the best-known warnings of uh, judgment in the Bible also happens to be one of the best-loved children's stories in the Bible. <laughs> Have you noticed that? A- and it's, it's Noah's Ark. And it's understandable that it would be a very much-loved children's story because, well, children love stories about about animals and about boats and about tubby bearded men with robes, don't they? And yet, 
uh, Noah's Ark, it turns out, is, is, is not a kid's story about a floating zoo. It's a historical account of the most devastating flood that the world has ever known. It's a story about a flood which is intentionally uh, caused by God. Why? Why would God do that? Well, let's take a look, shall we? If you open up your Bibles at um, Genesis chapter 6, we're going to cover a big slab of scripture but focus on a few, just a few points from chapter 5 through to chapter 9. And we see that the, the, the account of Noah begins with some, what seem to be rather strange comments about the about the state of humanity. Uh, let me just read again a few verses for you. I'm looking at uh, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, what does this tell us about the state of humanity at the time? Well, uh, at the very least, we can see that things aren't great, are they? Uh, because in verse 3, uh, we, we're told that, uh, that God's patience uh, with humanity is, is coming to an end. Um, he, he's not going to put up with mankind for very much longer. In fact, he sets a time limit and gives advance notice of 120 years. And so why has God reached the limit of his patience? Well, the reason given here is, strangely, it's, it's about the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. And we look at that and we think, well, well what does that mean? Who are these sons of God and what have their marriages got to do with it? Now, there are a few different uh, views on this. Um, for example, some have speculated that perhaps these sons of God are, are fallen angels and these fallen angels have come to earth and they have, they have uh, seen these beautiful human women and have married them. That's one view. It's got a few problems with it, that view. Uh, or others uh, think perhaps these are the sons of God, these are the... Uh, the descendants of Adam through the line of his perhaps more godly son, Seth. And uh, th these men, the sons born to that family line, are, are actually marrying the, son, the daughters that come from the family line of his ungodly son, Cain. And perhaps it's that mixture of a godly, you know, men marrying into an god ungodly line of of women. Now that's the view of some. I think it's also got some difficulties. Or well, how about this? Perhaps these sons of God are the, the high-profile sinners of the day. You see, in the ancient world, 
um, a son of God or sons of God, uh, can refer to, uh, to men who were renowned um, because they had emerged as uh, strong and powerful, as influential, of, uh, of men of authority, uh, leader types, and they were glorified. They were glorified as being gods. <laughs> they were, in a sense, they were deified. They were called sons of God. But far from being anything like God, they were actually tyrants. And how do tyrants treat women? <laughs> well, uh, far from marrying women uh, in order to fulfil God's purpose for marriage in that one flesh union of, uh, uh, of two people who love each other, are committed to each other uh, and who are equal to one another, far from that, far from that, they, 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 they are driven by lust and they, they see beauty and they take whatever and they take whoever they want because they're powerful. They've got authority. And so if, if that is the meaning here, it means that these sons of God are the high-profile sinners of the day. You know, you and I, we read, we read about high-profile people uh, in our own day, don't we? Uh, we read about them on the news websites, about the, the scandals of the rich and the powerful people uh, of our world. But if we had their money, if we had their power, might not we find that in our hearts that we're actually a bit like them? And that the difference between us and them is that they have opportunity, which we don't have. They also have a spotlight on their lives. We don't have the spotlight on our lives. In fact, um, if these sons of God were merely the high-profile sinners of the day, then what comes next makes sense. Check out verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made men on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. See, it's not just the rich and the, the powerful uh, who can take whatever they want uh, in order to gratify their own uh, sinful desires. No, uh, every person's heart is inclined uh, not towards God, our creator, but our hearts, every heart, is actually inclined towards ourselves and living our lives the way that we see fit rather than the way that God sees fit. Uh, further on in verse 11, this, this state of, uh, of people is actually universal. Um, it's true of every person's heart. We live for our own desires rather than living for our creator. And that, um, 
uh, is not a neutral thing for God. In fact, God we see here in this passage is a God uh, who has feelings. Uh, God is, is grieved in his heart. His heart is broken by what he sees of the sinfulness of humanity. How much it would have grieved his heart to make the decision that he now makes. Because although he is a God who is long-suffering, although he is patient beyond that which we can possibly imagine, we see here that his patience is now at an end. And the 120-year countdown has begun. This is a grim picture. Um, But it's not a picture that's without hope. For in verse 8 we read uh, that a man named Noah, quote, found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Um, doesn't mean that he was free of sin, as we later find out when he got drunk and so on, but uh, he found favour in the eyes of the Lord. God uh, looked at Noah and said, I'm going to favour this particular man. So what do we know about Noah? Well, let's, um, let's just backtrack, shall we? And we need to go back to chapter 5. Uh, in Genesis chapter 5, uh, from verse 29, there is a, there is a genealogy. And uh, you know what a genealogy is? It's one of those long lists of really hard to pronounce um, <clears throat> Hebrew names, uh, which meant that Mary was glad that she was asked to read from Genesis 6, not Genesis 5 today, as she read for us aloud. Uh, And this one here tracks the family line from Adam um, through the line uh, to Noah. But if you scan your eyes down that list, do you notice anything strange about it? (laughs) What can you see there that sort of leaps off the page and smacks you on the face and says this is a really strange thing? Anything that's strange about that long list of names there? Yeah, the ages. How about the ages of these people, of Noah's ancestors, men who were living for 800, 900, almost 1,000 years? What do you make of that? Well, just like the sons of God, there's a few different views on this one, as you can imagine. I mean, I've sometimes wondered if maybe they calculated their years differently to the way that we calculate our years. Have you ever thought that? You know, so that... Uh, one of our years equals eight of their years. But that we discover, that view is quickly dashed when we read in chapter 7 that the flood began in the 600th year of Noah's life and it ended in his 601st year of his life and it actually tells us how many days there were in that. It turns out it's pretty close to... Uh, what we would consider to be one year. Or how about this thought? What if, by God's design, before the flood, people actually aged more slowly than us? Well, why would that not be possible? If God is God, and he is, and to to him a thousand years is, is like a day... Uh, Why is it not possible for God to have done that? In fact, uh, we can get so caught up on the ages that we can miss the the very purpose of the genealogy. 
Uh, let me draw your attention to a couple of things in the genealogy. First of all, what we see is that each generation, there is a, there is a pattern. Did you notice that? Uh, it goes like this. When a certain man lived for X number of years, uh, he then had a son. And then he lived for some more years. And he had other children. Uh, he lived so many years in total. And then he died. That's the pattern, over and over again. Adam died, Seth died, Enosh died. They all kept on dying because, because of sin. Uh, death has entered into the world, and that really helps you to see the gravity of sin. But there is one man who breaks that pattern. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 21, we're told about a, a man named Enoch and the children that he had. Um, he lived, we're told, for 365 years, but we're not told that he died. Rather, in verse 24, it says, Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. <laughs> and you scratch your head and you think, What's, that's mysterious, isn't it? He's, he's a godly man. There's no mention of him dying. He just disappeared. God took him away. What does this mean? What does it say to us? What do you consider a long life to be? I mean, when we're young, <clears throat> anyone who's a bit older than us, that's a long life. <laughs> but what do you consider is a long life for someone to have lived? 80 years? 90 years? My grandfather lived for 97 years, I think. I thought that was a pretty long life. But even so, it's too short. I um, remember speaking to a lady, a very dear elderly lady, who was on her deathbed. She was in her late 80s. And facing an end-of-life countdown of one, perhaps two weeks, with grief. She told me that life, her life, is just too short. It's too short, she said. Too short, as she feared not just the death that she knew was about to happen, but the judgment that follows. My life is too short. Pray that I would live longer, she asked. But the account of Enoch is at the very least a an early tantalising hint that we are more than just dust, that we have an eternal existence. We are, our life is more than just mortal life. There is a life with God, a life without God, forever. And the question then is, where will we spend our eternity? For the Bible clearly warns about judgment. Now, some people uh, spend their lives, I've read about them, trying to find the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat and in Turkey. Have you read the stories of these people? And I think, well, that's fine. Uh, good on them. That sounds like it's a very interesting thing to do. Uh, but for sheer realism, I actually don't think we really need to look much further than the text itself. 
Noah, uh, we told, was a godly man. He was a preacher of righteousness. And in chapter 6, verse 13, God revealed to Noah that a catastrophic flood was about to end all people. All people. All people. And humanity, though, would be reset, would start again through the family of Noah. Noah was to build a huge floating box to save his family and to save many animals. Um, well, where's the realism in that? I think it's, there's some realism in terms of the details. That You, know, you see, Noah was probably no naval architect uh, and um, God gave him the instructions about what this box was, this floating box was going to uh, look like, what its dimensions would be. In chapter 6, verse 15, God gave the plan. It was to be a hundred and feet to metres. Uh, you're reading feet in your Bibles there? All right, I'll give you the conversion metres because that's what most many of us understand. 140 metres long, uh, 23 metres wide and 13 and a half metres high. Can you envisage that? And with, with three decks he was to build... With all of that decking over all of that space, that is 30,000 square metres of decking. And I've got to tell you this, I checked out the biggest um, ocean liners in the world and uh, they're about just over half, uh, just over twice as long as, as, the, as, as Noah's Ark. So this is like the, the size of a small ocean liner that he's building and it must be capable of floating. <laughs> it must float. Can you imagine this? Imagine how people would have, um, bystanders, neighbours of Noah would have, would have ridiculed him. What are you doing, Noah? This is ridiculous. Uh, what, you know, this giant box. And imagine them ridiculing him as he's finished this giant box and he's, all the animals are coming to, to join the box uh, to get on board. They ridiculed him until in chapter 7, verse 16... The animals going in were, ma were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah, then the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Now, Noah was capable of actually constructing this um, amazing floating box. He would have been capable of being able to shut the door. But... God shut the door. Why? Well, we're not told. But I want to ask you this. If you were Noah, would you have the stomach to shut the door? Knowing what was about to happen? You know, I've seen... I have never seen a children's storybook on Noah's Ark which had pictures of thousands of men and women, boys and girls, drowning. Never seen it. Why? Would you have the stomach to shut the door? Do you remember um, March last year? It seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? That uh, We actually had a flood in Port Macquarie, didn't we? Remember that? It was, it was terrible. We had this... Terror, Rosendez, where, where's Rosendez? You remember it, don't you? 
That's right, as your, as your house filled up with water. Uh, it was a terrible storm and uh, with terrible floods. How did you feel as that was happening? How did you feel? You know, on the Monday night uh, of the floods, I was <coughs> sitting at home with Cassie late at night. We were playing a, a game of Scrabble when I found myself being contacted by a journalist. He was uh, from London, uh, working with the BBC. And uh, he wanted to see if they could talk to me about the floods in Port Macquarie. So we had a phone call. Long story short, uh, they said to me, in 90 minutes, we want to interview you live on television on uh, on our worldwide news service on BBC World News. Well, I thought, I'll say yes to this first and then I'll, 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 I'll panic later. <laughs> I'll pray later. I went into the lounge room and said, told Cassie what was going on and she said, that's lovely, dear, it's your turn in Scrabble. <laughs> Hello, Cassie, I believe you're watching in Kuala Lumpur uh, today. Well, what would I want to say? What would I want to tell people, people all around the world, about the floods in Port Macquarie? Amongst other things, I said that, you know, people love uh, Port Macquarie because of the beauty of God's creation. But when a powerful storm like this is parked right on top of us, we feel vulnerable and we feel that we are not as in control of our lives as we thought we were. It was live television. They couldn't stop me from saying something a bit Christian. (laughs) And a few minutes later, a friend in Canada contacted me and said, Scott, what's going on? I'm just here in Vancouver munching on my breakfast cereals and suddenly you're on my TV. (laughs) But we do feel vulnerable, don't we? How much more should the flood of Noah make us, make you and I, feel vulnerable? Feel that the things which we've been living for, the things which we trust in, are a bit more shaky than what we thought. The Bible tells us about judgment. The Bible tells us, and the flood of Noah is demonstrable proof of this, that when God promises judgment, what does he do? He delivers. He delivers. And God has promised another day of judgment. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, we're told that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. For one day... The Lord Jesus, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, who is seated now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, will come again. He will come again. And when he does, he comes in judgment and the world as we know it will end. That great passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, chapter two, 1 verses 8 and 9 which says that when the Lord Jesus comes uh, in all of his glory, 
that those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will be punished and shut out, shut out from the presence of God forever. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for each person, it will be either life forever with God in his heaven or life shut out from the presence of God. The door's been closed forever. The elderly lady I spoke with was actually concerned that she might not be good enough for heaven. And that is a right concern, isn't it? I'm glad that she had that concern. Because we are no different to people in Noah's day. Um, Whether we... uh, Uh, men and women who exploit our wealth and our power to gratify our sinful natures, or whether we're just ordinary people uh, who do the same thing, but we just do it in our hearts. None of us are good enough for God. And whereas Noah took refuge in a boat, God invites us to take refuge in his son, in the man Jesus, who by his death and resurrection has paid the penalty for our sin. And until he returns, the door remains open. It's open for you if you're not already on the boat. For be assured that just as God delivered the flood that he promised, so too the Lord Jesus will return in judgment. Uh, In Matthew chapter 24, um, Jesus says that when he comes again, it'll just be like in the days of Noah. Um, People will be going about the ordinary busyness of their lives, you know, going to work and uh, eating and drinking and raising their families and paying off their mortgages and enjoying their golf and ignoring God, ignoring God. And suddenly the door will be shut by the return of Jesus or the end of their lives. But how can people know about this unless we, you and I, are prepared to warn them about it? You know, in our culture, I'm sure that you'd agree with this, that uh, you and I face enormous pressure, uh, enormous social pressure, to not speak about sin and judgment. But we must. We must. Not because we want people to receive judgment, but because we want people to be saved from judgment. If you knew that the flood was coming, would you not want to warn people? Tell people about it? Tell the people you love about it? I reckon you would. And you'd be tempted to want to invite them onto the boat, wouldn't you? So too, we should not be hesitant. We should not be ashamed. We should not be embarrassed to tell others of their need to be saved through Jesus. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, We thank you for this 
graphic warning from your word. Father, we see that when you make a promise that, that you fulfil it. And we pray that uh, it would be a warning to each of us and that indeed we would be those who warn others of the impending judgment. Father, we pray for our world, we pray for our nation, we pray for our, uh, our town, we pray for our families and those who are in our lives that you would open up people's hearts and that you would make us bold, bold to be people who speak your truth uh, out of love for you and out of love for others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.